When has a superintendent ever answered her own phone? Isn't that what her secretary is supposed to do? If I tell you that Robert Schaap, superintendent of the renowned Mamaroneck, New York district, answers his own phone, as busy as he is and with a mind-boggling daily agenda that he keeps, it's going to give you your first inkling of what type of person and what type of administrator he is. Now, I was calling to speak with one of his colleagues, anyone but Robert, to find out how I could surprise him with the publication of this conversation to play at the celebration of his retirement this month. A surprise! So what happens? He answers the phone himself. No problem, always at the top of my game. What do I do to dissimulate my embarrassment and quite frankly, my frustration? I did what any diplomatic evolved adult would do. I hung up. <laughs> Until he hears his introduction, he won't know that that scream and the figurative slamming down of a phone was me. Now, I am really proud to say that Robert Shapps and I are childhood friends. Very proud because you're going to hear that the educational system Robert and I grew up with has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with what he's created over the past 13 years in his district, largely based on the best ideologies in the world and implemented with compassion, empathy, an expansive vision, and most of all, very but very high expectations, and virtually all of which had been realized because of his tireless work. And by the way, one of his projects is a bee farm that he created right on school grounds and now serves as a part of the vocational learning center he has proudly promoted. When beginning this podcast, speaking about superintendents was never, and I mean never, part of my vision. I associate the position with politics, self-interest, and distance. And Robert is so far from these traits that it's difficult to voice that sentiment in the same sentence as speaking about him because of what he stands for. And boy, are you going to see what Robert stands for. Now, because Robert's vision is so all-encompassing, I'm going to be including a list in the show notes, but I want to be sure that you remember some of his main points. So I'm going to scaffold them for you. He's going to be talking about the way he found to bond the extreme diversity in his district, which is both culturally and economically diverse, how Project Zero and the Kim Marshall reports have been fundamental in his formation as an educator, how he grew communication between his office and every single teacher in his district, and how he chose different programs for the curriculum, for their organic approaches, and the community building aspects. We're also, and this is really important, we're going to hear how Robert faced the many challenges of the pandemic because they have far-reaching consequences. Instead of creating a separation and a division in his community, he worked with Stanford University's top thinkers to weave together systems that brought the community together in an immutable manner. Now, I know this has been a longer introduction than normal, so I'll stop now and let Robert take over, but I just wanted to prepare you for the incredible journey of a visionary who a district is lucky enough to call their own superintendent, Robert Schatz. So, 
So let's begin. Let's begin. Because again, um, I, I was speaking with someone I, I've met recently who's deep into meditation. And she's saying herself, she was just transplanted from California to Vermont. And it's different being with people that you haven't grown up with. That does have context here because you and I grew up together and we were educated in this in a district where our parents moved there very deliberately because the public school system was very impressive. But it was based on a very traditional model. And one of the profound reasons why I'm so excited to talk to you is because we did have that model growing up and yet you did not use it. You've, you basically rejected it. And from what you've explained to me, Robert, you have done incredible studies, incredible introspection, and you use amazing models on which to um, form a platform, a, a basis for your district. So what I'd like to do here is I'd like you to give us a vision of what the district is now that you're in Mamaroneck when you first got there so that we understand how you've molded it so positively. Sure, and thank you. And it's a, it's a, a tribute uh, to, to be here and, and engage in a conversation about teaching and learning because it really has been my life for well over 30 plus years. And so um, I, I would say that when I arrived in Mamaroneck, it was a very traditional place. We are, you know, um, really next door to uh, a, a very accomplished Scarsdale Public Schools. And many of the, I think, same underpinnings or belief systems around what is success, what is academic success, uh, resonated in in this school system, but there's a difference, and I think primarily the difference is that um, though you can throw a stone to to where we did grow up and, and attend school, um, our community was vastly different. We we have always been a community that has welcomed outsiders, that is, people from other countries and immigrants, and so there there was this um, like sense of diversity and really. Um, strong belief of, of, of a pride around diversity that was important to build upon. But I think also um, is because there were so many, uh, I would say, varying strengths of programs that I saw the kernels, it was to say, what was the unifying vision um, to really bring that out in its best form? And for me, that was really pointing to the sense of what I would call authentic learning, or we can call it experiential learning or project-based learning or all the above. It was really trying to make the connection between the formal aspects of learning in schools that had really uh, stood the test of time and this idea of the application of learning. How do I know I know something? Or how would a student demonstrate that understanding that is beyond the traditional context? The second point I wanted to just say is um, that traditional model of schooling in my mind is very teacher-directive. It is, I say something or I, I believe something and the students are going to give it back in a way that is not really how the world works or how we want our students to leave us and go off into the world. And so more that dialectic, more the relationship of how does student-centered learning take precedence? And what do we mean by that? Because it's a lot of jargonism, but what does it look like in its real form in terms of how students are at the center? They are forming the basis of learning, engaged in that. So walking into that classroom, it's not linear where the teacher is just telling or doing and the students are responding. So for me, it was that subtle shift and how do you get a system of 5,600 students and 550 professionals to kind of move in that direction? Well, that takes time. And I think we look very different now than we did 13 plus years ago. 
So can you explain that? Because I am a teacher. And so I have the teacher's perspective of saying, well, I can influence 20, 25, 30 students in my classroom, and maybe some of the teachers will like what I'm doing. And I'm not a principal because the principal also has a bigger view. You are a superintendent and you have an influence over all of these people. And you could basically do whatever you wanted, but you decided to use the models of, was it Project Zero from Harvard and the Kim Marshall reports, which I think are fascinating. I do not understand why I didn't know these when I was living in the state. They're very progressive and, and innovative, and I don't understand why I didn't know about them. Well, it starts with really building what I would say consensus around teaching and learning. What we what is meant by quality instruction? And I think for administrators, whether you're the superintendent or a principal, uh, an assistant superintendent or director, getting into that classroom and engaging in conversations with teachers about what defines quality teaching and what learning looks like relative to how students are assessed is really at the heart of it. And so from my view, I, I've never seen myself as a top-down leader is really from the bottom up, that is, to really start to kind of in some ways define collectively what we mean when we say kids are learning and what those outcomes look like, but more so the, the things that teachers do um, that really separate themselves relative to instruction and naming it and being able to have professional conversations. So we spend our administrators through the Marshall uh, mini lesson structure, over 3,500 examples of going into classrooms. So um, what I would say is what's changed going back to your original point from when I arrived, it is very common for, to see an administrator or, or, or groups of administrators in classrooms every day. So from a teacher perspective, it's not, oh boy, what did I do wrong? Or, you know, here I go. Um, there's a normalcy around sharing your work and then engaging in reflective conversation that I think feels and looks different. When I visit other districts in the area, the first response from administrators is like, why would I go into a classroom? Or I only go three times a year, whereas we're always in classrooms. And so that is the starting point for our work that looks very different overall. Um, I think I'm just trying to get a lead into some specifics, because what you're saying is you're, you're not a top down leader. And I have the honor now of going into schools and advising them on how to create the best practices in a whole school. And one of the key practices is a leader creating other leaders who empower other leaders. And so what I'm asking you is, could you give some specifics? The vision of the schools, there are six schools in Mamaroneck, from what I understand. How yes. does it look like when you first came in and what did you specifically do? So um, when I look like, first of all, these are neighborhood schools that are really specific and divided, I would say, across social uh, lines and race and ethnicity. And so they're very distinct where we have one school that has over 50% uh, low um, social economic status and a higher percent of Hispanic Latino students and families, as opposed to across different part of our community that is very homogeneous, um, white, affluent. And so um, the thread that was important was access and equity of opportunity to learn. And I think to me, that begins and ends with this idea of a shared purposes around teaching. So, so we needed to have curriculum consistency and building uh, a, a, what I would say a, an understanding of what does good mathematics instruction look like at elementary schools? Because as a system that comes together in sixth grade, you couldn't have children coming into a school with very, very different, uh, having different sense of number sense or conceptual understanding of mathematics. And so the first part of it is to make sure that there was a vertical and clear sense of the what, 
what, what are we teaching and why? Two is, is the how, is really getting to um, standardize, uh, when I say that, not in, in a very um, uh, constrictive or, you know, whether it's one size fits all, but really have a common understanding of, of instruction. And so a lot of it was spent with our administrators at the billing level to really examine and understand what does that mean. And so you could go anywhere in our system across the system. It doesn't mean that all third graders are doing the same lesson the same day, but all third grade teachers could tell you clearly what the unit and the focus is and the larger idea around learning is about. And I think that was really something that was missing that is now apparent and clear. So, so that's one thing that I had to, that kind of moving that or turning the Queen Mary from that respect, um, that was the work and it was very practical in its nature. The second thing I think I would just want to say is getting a shared vision for our administrators of, of how they, what we, what we mean by supervising teachers, um, because having professional conversations um, we spent a lot of time looking at research on um, on the brain and how adults learn and take feedback because, you know, that fight or flight response to any kind of direct feedback is, is really problematic if you're not conscious or certainly understanding of how to engage in conversations. So teachers can use that in an effective way and turnkey it into improving their practice as opposed to feeling they're doing something wrong or not the way it should be. Can we, I, I really want to nail you down on specifics here, sure. because you're saying that you want a common vision. How did you manage that? Was there training? Um, something is, is <clears throat> something is seen ostensibly simple as the math program. What did you finally decide on? Because there are some incredibly innovative ones, and I'm curious. Well, I would say, and, and we went through an extensive process of review, and, and again, going back to my style, we are fortunate to have math coaches at every elementary um, uh, school, as well as a district math coach. And we've spent a lot of time in them as informed consumers reviewing math materials. And this is a perfect example. We went with Bridges Math, which um, we're really impressed with. One, because the, the it's really taking the best of constructionist thinking around mathematics. Two, um, we were really impressed by how it fits into just the cycle of an elementary day with number corner and very basic community building aspects of it. What's important, and I think this is an example of my leadership, we are in the midst of a five-year implementation of this program because we wanted to ensure that the adults understood that, you know, kind of felt confident with certain aspects of the program as students were going through and to make sure that as students traveled, our teachers who were coming next were ready to kind of meet where kids were around mathematic thinking and the application of the program. We've seen amazing results and it gets back to my philosophy. I just visited a month ago, a first grade class, an ICT class. So it was a team taught class with 10 special ed students in a regular class. And all of our students are holding a, a small whiteboard up showing how they have figured out patterns, right? And there was no right answer. It was 10 different in some cases, uh, you know, and ways in which students were coming to realize a solution or a pattern. And so it's that, again, approach that you appreciate and that, that joy to see how it comes together in a system so that there really is not inconsistency around expectation and access from being consumers of evaluating a program 
to kind of adopting a program, to figuring out a multi-year implementation with fidelity. And just so we know, um, we had to understand because we have a dual language program, the implication materials around how that's going to affect our elementary students who are learning in a dual language program um, and the resource materials on that. We had a visit from another district in the area to watch our dual language program. They were so impressed by the mathematics instruction that they went ahead and adopted the program. However, lesson learned, they adopted it for K through six, K through five, excuse me, in one year. And we received calls constantly from the superintendent and from the one lone math coach to say, how do I do this when we've now given teachers a responsibility to own this with, without the supports and the resources they need? And that's precisely the difference, Don, in my view. Um, you need to look at the perspectives of teachers, understand the challenges they have, and support them in all of your thinking. Okay, you're saying that, and it's probably so, so much a part of your work and how you did it, but you're not expressing exactly how you're, there's an arc from you to the students, but we're missing how you implemented training and communication with the teachers. Yes, it started with an assistant superintendent of curriculum instruction coming down and saying, what would a, a multi-year implementation of a math program at the elementary level look like? Because we went through this when the state did a, all of a sudden a quick turn to say, Bingo, uh, you know, 2010, 11, we're introducing a new statewide uh, standards for learning without any warning. And we're saying, how do we do this with the teacher in mind? And what that took was a series of sustained professional development, right? Workshops, summer workshops, turnkey, having the math mavens working, pushing into classrooms, beginning with our kindergarten teachers. All right, and then really kind of continually having a cycle of learning for the adults that was well in advance of their students they were facing. So it really was a full, what I would say, implementation around systems efforts of really getting to the people who needed to and making sure that they had the right dose of professional development, both in person, both virtual resources, the command of printing resources for thousands, 2,500 individual elementary students, and all that kind of wrapped up in how we did it. So, all right, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds as though you had the idea, you knew what you wanted for the students, and then you did a sort of backward scaffold in my terminology. You made sure the superintendent, the others, the vice assistant superintendent, I'm going to sure the instruction, who is really the chief learning officer of, of the system. Yes, that she had the resources budgetarily, um, that we understood what, what does it take to really take the Bridges Math program and implement it fidelity in a way that teacher are comfortable and we're seeing the results with students. All right. So then that's essentially how you're working with each concept. And I want to talk about two main things. You told me that the pandemic was really fundamental and, and some of the major changes that you've implemented. Could you talk about that? Because you did sure. some incredibly innovative decisions. You made sure. some incredibly innovative decisions. So uh, there are a couple of things that stand out in my mind. And I think it was it's relevant to today where the, uh, you know, in the U.S. national news, they were talking about the lingering impact of learning loss. Um, that is still really kind of taking hold for our kids and the concerns about public education. I would say that um, like every school district and we were, I would say, right in the epicenter of COVID in America, we were part of the community of patient zero. So the first patient on the East Coast um, who, who had COVID and the impact on our ability to kind of react in the moment. Um, I, I did see it coming to some degree 
and we were able to kind of get through the first few months, but I was not happy with our, our readiness and, and the product of our work um, as we were trying to really deal with a serious health uh, a scare, but a reality. Um, and to the point where the first thing we did, Donna, and I think it relates to uh, this idea of care, we created a crisis team anticipating that we may lose our teachers, we may lose family members. And so we wanted to make sure both on an emotional side that we we're prepared to support our teachers our families and our children uh, in, in the midst of a pandemic. Second to that, we needed to improve. We needed to understand if this is something we're going to be in the long haul, how are we going to, as a system, going to, in some ways, re not react, but in some ways, proactively uh, respond for the long haul? We worked with the Stanford School of Design and brought stakeholders together, which was a joy for me, not knowing where it was going to lead. In the spring, after that first, what I would say, part of COVID, to really establish um, how we were going to deliver our, our educational program in the year ahead. And it was wonderful because we had parents, we had community members who didn't have children in the schools, we had teachers, administrators, support staff, all together working with the Stanford School of Design virtually as a group um, to come up with a set of values, what we really believed was critically important, and how we would operationalize those values in terms of learning. And so that really spent, we spent the summer really continuing that process. And we ended up committing to um, a full-time in-person virtual model, when I say that, but more so built on ratios. That is, we said, how do we give students a sense of continuity in a crisis, in a pandemic, in terms of contact with their uh, an adult um, and, and, and children, uh, their, their peers, um, really focus on quality learning, but also do it in a way that it's ritualized in terms of every day, because a lot of, of models didn't allow for every day of schooling. So we were able to create a half-day model in person, um, alternately with an afternoon. Um, we found uh, as a result of this that we actually had learning games. And we had children who were learning with a, with a Chromebook in a car on their way to, to a pharmacy. The parents, you know, the circumstances of, or living in a room with 10 other people trying to concentrate, you know, on learning during the pandemic. And what we've learned from this and that what we've been able to take from uh, and use is that the ratios, that is having one adult with a small group focus on learning in a concentrated way really moves the needle relative to what I would say maintaining or accelerating progress. We're a district um, that prides itself on a summer reading program that gives our most vulnerable kids access to books. We don't, we don't have summer school. We don't have anything. We just say, come in and pick out 15 books and read. And then we look at and compare over the summer what happens to them. And one of the things I would say is we've built that now into who we are because we've been able to deal with what are called summer learning loss for our most vulnerable kids and accelerate learning. Well, taking that model, we started to deliver um, books to children during the pandemic because we want them to continue. So I don't know if um, Stitch Fix is a, a online clothing where they send you clothes that they think fits your style. Well, we took a stick, stick fix to approach to reading where we sent students books personalized to them during the pandemic and said, tell us if these books are what you wanna read and we'll get you more of them because we knew we needed to stay connected to kids and have some rituals of learning. 
So um, we've now taken that ratio aspect of this and applied it in real settings by pushing teachers in at certain times or changing our elementary schedule so that we are maintaining those low ratios. I would say a la maybe a private school or in some ways that really gives us an advantage relative to contact with learners. So that's a small slice of it. Tell us, and then, just curious, who were the people taking, were the teachers taking the books to the students? Well, we actually had teachers and administrators doing that. We, we actually, we, we have, so several years ago, I created a literacy ambassador position, I call the book whisperer, where the sole purpose of the interview was to really go into about 122 classrooms and first audit our collections of, of classroom libraries and start to create an alignment between who are the learners and where they are in their reading lives and then matching that with books. At the same time, their job was to create what we call this book matching with our reluctant readers, where to identify their interests of reluctant readers through teachers and then send, right, put together an array of books that we think might be interesting and actually send them to their classroom so that to promote an independent reading. And we've a lot of this work we've been able to present nationally at AARA to show the, the even gains of really this entrepreneurial approach to learning. We look at accelerated reading gain. We don't look at linear gains. We look at accelerated because we know we have a lot of students who are below grade level reading and we want to accelerate. So through our summer reading program, through this kind of book matching, we really target struggling or what I would say um, learners who readers who are just on the cusp and we really want to do that and that's an example of what continued for the pandemic so I would say kudos to all of us who rolled up our sleeves and said we need to get books in the hands of kids at the most vulnerable time of their learning life. Kudos 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 and as a literature teacher of course I applaud that. So that's what is now the first part of our conversation with Robert Schapp, superintendent extraordinaire. In the second part, which you can't miss, Robert explains the key features he implemented in the school so that 50% of the students now study at university level so that when they graduate and go to university, they'll have to pay for fewer classes because they already have credit for them. He's going to talk about the bilingual model he developed, which has enveloped the Latino community in language and culture so that they feel completely accepted. And he'll also talk about key elements he believes can be part of anyone's district. So continue with me on Doorways to Learning with this next and last episode of Robert passing the baton on to an incoming superintendent who will hopefully continue what Robert has begun. And please go to scaffoldingmagic.com to find so many resources that can expand on what Robert talks about in many of the innovative programs he created. In the meantime, have fun in your classes and at home, and see you soon for more.